Let us pray. God of all hope, we pray that you would fill us with hope and joy as we ponder what it means to follow you in this broken, sin-torn world. We pray for the people of Ukraine that you would bless and be with those who suffer and that a day would come when all war would end and when all people would know and love you as you are. It's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, today we are looking at 2 Peter, and I'm going to offer an introduction to this short letter, and uh, I'm not going to pause for questions after that introduction, but there will be time for that if you have questions about the letter itself and not what is written in it uh, whenever we have discussion. So this is a very short letter, uh, if not written by the apostle himself, or even if 1 Peter was written by Peter, it is possible um, that 2 Peter was written by someone else. And so in terms of authorship, could be the apostle himself. Many scholars uh, would suggest it was written by someone else who perhaps knew Peter or was part of that fellowship group. And uh, the themes are a little bit different. You do have more exhortation to Christian virtue. That's a big point of continuity between First and Second Peter. But then there's two shifts in particular that indicate time is going by. One is that false teachers have arisen who distort the authentic apostolic tradition, and they are being criticized. And then second, there is a question arising in the community, which is, why has Jesus not yet returned? Last week in 1 Peter, we heard that line that really sums it all up when Peter says, the end is near. And that was a reference to a belief that the Lord would return any moment, that it was not necessary to abolish the institution of slavery, for instance, that Jesus was returning. But of course, Jesus has not yet returned, and a decade has gone by, give or take, and people are wondering why has this not happened? And so Second Peter speaks to that question. Um, in terms of when this was written, if not written by Peter, scholars place the date anywhere between 80 and 130 AD, but somewhere between 80 and 90 seems to be the most popular option amongst scholars. It is important to note that it's not just modern liberal scholars who uh, question whether or not uh, this text was written by Peter, but even some of the patristics. So it, for instance, uh, Origen, who lived at the end of the second century, he had some doubts as to whether or not this was written by the apostle himself. And so it's not just a modern phenomenon um, to, to question authorship. And I say that because what we don't want to do is have the authority of the text diminished in any way if we don't believe this was written by the apostle. Modern notions of plagiarism do not need to be projected onto first century practices, that in the same way that a community that gathered around the beloved disciple John authored the fourth gospel, there is no reason uh, why the church that Peter founded could not speak on his behalf. And so that's just something just to name. And then one of the things you'll notice about Second Peter is that it's got a lot of shared content with that short epistle in the New Testament called Jude. Uh, it makes a lot of references to the Old Testament, and it's also more apocalyptic than 1 Peter in terms of its tone and emphasis. So with that foundation laid, let's dive in. Verse 1, 
Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be yours in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus, he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants in the divine nature. For this very reason, make every effort to support faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For anyone who lacks these things is short-sighted and blind and is forgetful of the cleansing of past sins. Therefore, brothers, sisters, be all the more eager to confirm your call and election. For if you do this, you will not stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So I'm going to pause there and just to name a few things. First is, I love how he begins this letter it is to those who have received a faith as precious as ours. And I just think that is a wonderful way of self-identifying as the church. Who are we, right? Because we remember that was a question of First Peter. Who are we? We are those who have received a very precious gift called faith through the righteousness or covenant faithfulness of God. Your identity is bound up as one who has received a precious gift. I love how that is just stated and how this frames the whole epistle. And then he says, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. And he starts the letter by saying something that I think we all need to hear, which is God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. I really want you to focus in on those two words, everything needed, that you have nothing that you lack. Um, you know, we often approach our faith thinking that we lack things. We, we lack we, what we need. We don't have the resources we need. We, we want more than we have. We want to be more faithful than we are, more courageous than we are. We want to be smarter than we are. But, but Peter says, actually, you have everything needed. In your life, whatever is needed for life and godliness has been given to you. And so this letter is really anchored and rooted in sufficiency and enoughness and abundance. You have everything needed. It starts with this precious faith that you've been given as a gift but it doesn't end there. Everything you need, you have. And then he shifts and talks about escaping from the corruption in the world. Just a little reminder, 
the New Testament authors speak of world in two different ways, and we need to understand the different nuances of how they speak of the world. One is in a very positive way. It is the creation that God loves. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? So the world as positive, created um, place where we live. But then, of course, the world also becomes a stand-in, a symbolic way of referencing all the collective values and attitudes and habits and ways of being that tend to characterize uh, human beings and institutions and governments and whatever else, right, that does not align with God's purpose. We just call it the world. Uh, in fact, the early Christians were said to have you know, have a mission to resist three things, um, the world, the flesh, the devil, you know, and the world was that place where all kind of the core values uh, seem to reign. And so here he's speaking of the world in that sense. And he says that the corruption in the world is because of lust. Now, those of us who have kind of grown up with the um, heritage of the Puritans um, might tend to think that he's speaking of sexuality here. Um, that's certainly included in that word, but he's not talking about sex. A better translation of that Greek word is actually craving. And so I want you to think of Adam and Eve, right, grabbing that piece of fruit that they crave rather than trusting God. Um, they had everything needed, you know, to go back to verse three, but there was craving. So they reach out and they grab it. Um, this, this word translated lust means craving. It is the exact opposite of the contentment we hear about in 1 Timothy. And it's also perfectly aligned with an orthodox understanding of sin. Sin is not when we love evil things. No created thing is evil. It's when we love a good thing too much, and then we start to crave it for its own sake. And, you know, we can actually probably look at any difficulty we have in our life, anything that is corrupted, and, and y'all can challenge me on this whenever we have a conversation, but I would say 99 times out of 100, if not 100 times out of 100, it's due to some craving, right? Where we forget that we have everything needed. We forget that we're the recipient of something very precious. And then we start craving objects for their own sake. And then of course, right? We see each other as competitors. You're either an ally who can help me get the thing I crave or you're a hindrance and need to be defeated because you're going to stop me from getting the thing that I crave. You know, what is it, you know, if we're thinking about world events that would lead to an invasion, right, of a sovereign country. There's something crave. There's something I want. And so I'm going to go in and take it. And so whether we see that played out on the global scale in terms of war or in our individual life and in our relationships, when we see corruption in the world, uh, Second Peter is wise to say it always comes from a craving. We take the place of God. We want more and more and more. And so verse five, he says, what's the antidote to that? Well, it's goodness, it's knowledge, it's self-control, it's endurance, it's godliness, it's mutual affection, it's love. Uh, all the things that first Peter has already been talking about and that we studied together uh, when we looked at Romans before First Peter, it's basically Christian virtue, uh, and it's grounded in contentment and knowing that we have everything needed. And 
in verse nine, whenever Peter says, uh, people who lack these things are short-sighted and blind, forgetful of past sins, he's not just being petty. I, I mean, I take these words very literally. Like if we are craving something, we are short-sighted and blind. We have lost sight of the truth that we are recipients of a very precious life, a precious faith, that we have everything needed, that life is meant to be a celebration. Um, the archetype in scripture, the one who embodies this more than anyone would be Esau, right? Who had the birthright, it belonged to him, but he traded that for a pot of stew. Now, Jacob was no angel and Jacob tricked him out of this, but if we're going to look at Esau's behavior, his craving of that pot of soup was the ultimate example of being short-sighted and blind. Because what did he gain? Soup. What did he lose? His birthright. And I think what Second Peter is suggesting is that whenever we're lost in craving, this thing that we want so badly, whatever it is, we want more money, we want more respect. We want more holiness, we want more possessions, we want more friends, whatever it is that we crave. All that we're focused on is what we don't have and on what we lack. And we lose sight of the gift of what he calls in verse 10, our call and election. That word election just basically means you've been chosen, you've been set apart, you've been grafted in. Um, and so to not lose sight of that. Uh, and then last thing I want to say here is verse 16 through 18. I just love how there's a reference to the transfiguration. Uh, for those of you who tuned in to St. Michael's this morning or who were there in person, we heard the story uh, from Luke's account of Jesus being atop that holy mountain where that voice was heard. This is my son, my beloved, listen to him. And I think it's just good to name uh, that we have several accounts of this incredible event that happened, which we call the transfiguration. We have it in Mark, we have it in Matthew, we have it in Luke. Uh, but just so we know that they weren't all copying each other and cheating, here we have another source in Second Peter, a different tradition that's recounted this moment. And I think that it's a wonderful providence that our reading of Second Peter perfectly coincides with the last Sunday after the Epiphany, where we tell the story of Jesus being transfigured on that mountain. And so in verses 16 through 18, it's that event being referenced.